We will notice one verse in Romans 8 this morning as we begin, and then we'll turn to Galatians 3. So, have a hand in Galatians 3, but uh, notice with me one verse in Romans 8. This morning, we will be looking at the flesh as the alternative to living in the Spirit. What we will look at this morning is of deadly importance. And the reason for that is because of what Paul says in verse 13 of Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does it mean to live according to the flesh? What does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? Whatever that means is is essential that we understand it because one carries life, the other carries death. So let's look at Galatians 3 and see that contrast between the flesh and the spirit here as well. Galatians chapter 3 and the main verse we'll be looking at this morning is Galatians 3 and verse 3. We'll begin in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Beginning by the Spirit, but being perfected by the flesh. Flesh and Spirit. We're going to give attention to these two matters today and next week. We'll look at the flesh today and the spirit next week. Today we will look at what it means to live in the flesh. And next week we will look at what it means to walk in the spirit. You can live all of your days either in the flesh or in the spirit. It is possible to walk through our days in the flesh. What does that mean? And why is it foolish to think that we can be perfected by the flesh. My hope today is that when we get done, you will understand and feel the depth of the word in verse 3, foolish. I hope that you will feel the foolishness of living in the flesh and have an understanding of what that would mean. The sermon today ought to leave you disgusted with any teaching that encourages you to begin by the Spirit, but be perfected by the flesh. In order to grasp what Paul's saying here in verse 3, and why he says that it is foolish to think that we could be perfected by the flesh, it's necessary for us to consider a doctrine that theologians have commonly called total depravity. What do we mean when we say that human beings are totally depraved? The doctrine of total depravity tells us the very biblical idea that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they corrupted themselves 
and their offspring, that would be us, and that this corruption extends to man totally. And by that we don't mean that every man commits as many acts of sin as he possibly can. Instead, what we mean by total depravity is that man is totally corrupted. Every part of man is corrupted. Every part of him is twisted and deformed by sin. The scripture tells us, for example, and these are all words that are exactly out of the scripture, that sin has corrupted man's mind so that the scripture says it is empty, it is blind, it is defiled, and it is ignorant. The scriptures tell us that sin has corrupted man's understanding so that now it is dark, that he cannot understand the things of God, he cannot receive them. The scripture tells us man's heart now is hard and deceitful and full of evil. Man's conscience, the scripture says, is defiled so that he is unqualified to do any good work. Man's will, the scripture says, is unable to choose any good. It says that no man wills and seeks for God. The scripture tells us that man's passions or his desires and affections are evil and that they are directed only towards evil. And this means that every man and every part of every man is unalterably oriented toward sin. In fact, this depravity is so deep and complete that man is unable to do anything that is pleasing to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Paul says, Romans 8.8. 8. Man then is a slave to sin. He's not free to do anything else because he cannot our depravity is so deep that we cannot do anything else and we don't even want to do anything but sin. We are slaves to sin and we are content that it be so. Now let's stop for just a moment and consider what is man that is so totally depraved. You know that man is composed of two parts. The material part, the human body, and the immaterial part commonly referred to in the scriptures as the soul the spirit, the heart. The scriptures tell us that sin has impacted both parts of mankind. Man's immaterial internal structure, his heart, his mind, his will, his emotions, his conscience, all of this is completely dominated by sin, the scripture tells us. Every part of man's inside is oriented away from God and his lordship. And man's material external composition, his body, his hands, our eyes and our ears and our feet and our brains is also affected by sin. We use our bodies to commit acts of sin. And because of sin, our bodies then degenerate and die. Death catches up with all of us because our bodies are the slaves of sin. But here's an important thing to notice as we look at what Paul's saying here in Galatians 3. The scripture teaches us that the external part of man, his body, does what it does because the internal part of man, his heart, is what it is. Mark 7 makes this point clear. The internal drives the external. Jesus says that it is from the heart that evil actions and choices proceed. Christians are not Gnostics. You know what the Gnostics used to believe? 
Ancient Gnosticism taught that everything that is spiritual that you cannot see is good. And everything that is physical that you can see is evil. Christianity holds that our physical body is not evil. It is the creation of God. And yet we cannot escape the reality that people use their bodies to sin every day. Sin is always committed with the body, with the hands, with the mouth, with the eyes, with the brain. Sin is a matter of what pulses through our brains, what we do with our hands, what we look upon with our eyes, and where our feet take us. If the body is not evil, then where do these evil actions and words and thoughts come from? They come from the inside, Jesus says. They come from our hearts. Evil comes from within us. Evil begins inside and works its way out through the members of my body. Now, we'll look at several scripture passages today, and the majority of them will be in Romans 6 and 7. So we will come back to Galatians 3 at the end, but turn to Romans 6 with me. We need to note something about the connection between our depraved hearts, the depravity within, and its connection to our bodies. Okay, so man's got two parts, and evidently they're connected so that what the heart loves, the body does. The sin that is within comes out through my body. What is the nature of the connection between my heart and my body, between the depravity within and the actions of my body? Look at verse 6, Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I want you to focus on the phrase body of sin in verse 6. What is the body of sin? Whatever it is, it has been brought to nothing by the crucifixion of Christ so that we would no longer be a slave to sin. How are we to understand the relationship between body and sin? Now, that's actually really helpful to us because that's exactly the question that we've got on our minds right now. The inside of me that is filled with sin and my body, what's the relationship between the two of them? And here, Paul uses a very fancy word to describe that relationship of body of sin. What is the relationship between the body and sin that dwells within me? What does the of mean? Well, it's not actually hard to figure it out in this chapter because Paul tells you three times. For example, look at the last phrase of verse 6. The body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What is the relationship between my body and sin? You see the word slavery? That's the relationship that the of tells us about. Look at verse 12. Let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body. Okay, there's sin and the body again. What's the relationship between sin and the body? The relationship is a relationship of reigning. Sin inside reigns over my mortal bodies, making me obey its passions. One more look at verse 14. Sin will no longer 
have dominion over you. What does he mean by having dominion? He means in verse 13 that you present yourselves the instruments of your body for unrighteousness to sin. So what's the relationship between sin inside and my body outside? The relationship is one of slavery, verse 6, reigning, verse 12, and dominion in verse 14. In other words, we're dealing with a master-slave relationship. King and subject. The body is the subject, the slave. The heart and sin that dwells within it is the master. It's the king. And Paul tells us in verse 6, notice verse 6 again, we have been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. Before this crucifixion with Christ then, this is our state. Master, slave, king, subject, spirit, heart, passions, body. These words then, dominion, slavery, and reign, show us something about the state of who we are. They show us something about the relationship between the inside and the outside. What is that relationship? Before our crucifixion with Christ, that relationship was an unbreakable link. If the heart wished something, the body was the slave. It was dominated. It was reigned over by what was on the inside. The body had no possibility of doing anything but what the heart wanted. And the only thing that was in the heart was total depravity. And that's why Paul says, with the body you cannot please God if you are in the flesh. There was an unbreakable link between the inside and the out. Sin was in you. Your heart was depraved and it hijacked the members of your body, enslaving them to do its pleasure every time. As a result, your hands never did anything but sin. Sin was the master of your hands, of your feet. It was the master of your eyes. It dominated your brain. There was no possibility for your body to do anything but fulfill the desires and passions of sin that lived in your body. Sin reigned. It had dominion. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The link is total. It is unbreakable. There is no possibility that you could use your body for anything but sin. It is true that your body does depraved things, but the reason it does is because your heart is a depraved heart. Sin lives in there and it dominates your body and the link between sin alive in your heart and your body before Christ was unbreakable. And Paul calls this in verse 6, this whole arrangement. We know that our old self was crucified. Think of a man... Can you see his shape, his silhouette? That man has not been crucified with Christ. What is that man like? Unbreakable link between the inside and the out. He cannot please God. And Paul says that we have been crucified with Christ. Our old self, that thing, was crucified with Christ. And now a new arrangement lives. A new sort of man. The species before Christ. One of the characteristics of that species was an unbreakable link. The species that now lives after our crucifixion with Christ is different. The body of sin, the body dominated by sin, has been destroyed. And now Paul says you have the possibility. Verse 12. 
that sin should not reign in your mortal bodies. That you might not present the members of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now you have the possibility of presenting the members of your body to God as slaves of righteousness. This is why Paul gives us these exhortations in verses 12 and 13 of Romans 6. Jesus has died. You have died with him. This death has broken sin's stranglehold over your body, so don't let it reign. It's still in there, but don't let it reign over your body the way that it did. Don't present the members of your body to be sin, to be used for unrighteousness. Instead, present them to God because sin will not have dominion over you anymore. It does not. It's still possible for you to serve sin, but the unbreakable link has been severed. Sin no longer is the master. It is no longer the king. Now it is possible to obey a new master, to present the members of your body to a new master to do his will. And that means the body of sin, the body dominated by sin, has been destroyed. But here's another step we need to take. Why did sin reign over me in the first place? Before I was crucified with Christ, why was that link in place? Can we understand that unbreakable link a little bit more? Because I think if we could, we could understand how Jesus' death severed it and created the new man. And Paul actually answers that question for us of why sin reigned over me in the first place in verse 14 of Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 14 Present your members to God as slaves of righteousness. You can do that now because, for sin will not have dominion. Sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Why is that over? Why is that link severed? Why did it reign over me in the first place? What's changed so that now it doesn't? So that sin will not have dominion over me. Why? Since, verse 14, it will not have dominion over you anymore. Why? Because since you're not under the law, but you are under grace. Why did sin reign? Why does it not reign now? Why is that unbreakable link severed? The answer is because you're not under the law anymore. We're no longer under the law, so don't let sin reign. It's no longer the master. You're not under the law. That means that it used to reign because I was under the law. Now that I'm not under the law anymore, it no longer reigns. And I should not let it. So how does being set free from the law break that link? And set me free from sin's reign? And that's the idea that Paul develops in Romans chapter 7. We'll look at Romans 7 briefly. And I want you to begin with verse 22. Who is Romans 7 talking about? Verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Something's different about this man than the old man. The old man loves sin. The new man delights in God's law. And so Romans 7 is speaking to us about Christians. 
People who delight in the law of God, they have new hearts that love God's law rather than love sin. And so, the wretched man, in verse 24, that Paul speaks of, is a believer. And that means that what we're going to read is true of you. It's important to keep that fact in mind now as we read. Let's go back and look at verse 1, and let's just think again about the question we're trying to answer. Why did sin reign over me in the first place? Why was that unbreakable link there? Answer, because you were under the law. How does that work? Being under the law puts that link in place. How does not being under the law now mean that that link, link is not in place so that I can present my members as slaves of righteousness? Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Under the law, binding only as long as you live. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The death, death alters her relationship to the law so that she can commit no adultery in remarrying. Likewise, my brothers, verse 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. That was impossible when you were under the law. But now that you have died to the law, you may bear fruit to God. How does all of this work? Look at verse 4, you have died to the law so that you may bear fruit for God. What do you think Paul would have thought of that as a Pharisee? Death to the law, now finally I can bear fruit to God. That would have inflamed his anger. No fruit possible under the law? None, Paul says. But now that you have died to the law, now you can bear fruit to God. If the fruits of righteousness come through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Throughout the entire history of the fallen world, then the law has never produced even a gram of righteousness in any human being. When you were under the law, you could not bear fruit to God. Be set free from the law, now you can bear fruit to God, is what Paul says. Now question, why is it impossible to bear fruit for God? And let's think about this. If it's impossible for me to bear fruit for God, that sounds an awful lot like the unbreakable link. Sin, inevitably working itself out in sin in my life. Unable to bear fruit for God. Why? Because I'm under the law. But set me free from the law, now I can bear fruit to God. Now I cannot present the members of my body as instruments of unrighteousness. Now I can present them to God. How does that work? Being set free from the law, now I can bear fruit to God. And the answer is because of what verses 5 and 6 say of Romans 7. Why is it that being set free from the Lord, now I may bear fruit to God? Because, verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And that's exactly what we've seen. The sinful passions that are at work in me, my heart that is depraved, they are at work to bear fruit for death. And the law does what? It arouses those sinful passions. Okay. 
But, verse 6, now that we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may now, I'm sorry, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In verse 4, Paul says, I cannot bear fruit for God until I die to the law. Why? And there's two reasons Paul gives us. Why does being under the law mean I cannot bear fruit to God? Why does being set free from the law mean now I can? That link is broken. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, because of what Paul says in verse 5, the law arouses sin. It stirs up our sinful passions. You can read more about what Paul means by aroused by the law if you look at verses 7 through 12 of Romans 7. Romans 7 through 12 explains the phrase aroused by the law. And we're not going to work through verses 7 through 12, but here's Paul's point. Sin in your heart lies asleep until it is confronted by God's law. And when it's confronted by God's commandment, the sin that dwells in me that was asleep rears up its ugly head, goes to work producing its fruits in the members of my body, acts of sin, the end result of that is death. So put me under the law. Guess what happens? Sin is stirred up. Sin comes out. I die. The law produces death. Perhaps a story would help. This is from Augustine's Confessions written about 1600 years ago. Augustine says, without doubt, your law punishes theft, O Lord. And so does the law that's written in the hearts of men, which even iniquity itself does not erase. Every man knows that theft is wrong, he says. For what thief will suffer theft from another thief without protest? Every thief who is stolen from will protest that, hey, that's wrong, stop stealing from me, even though he himself is a thief. Not even he who has plenty when others have stolen under the impulse of want. Let's say a man's got every penny in the world, but nevertheless he wants to go and steal more. I, I wanted to steal, and I was compelled by no want. I didn't need anything, I just wanted to steal. Unless it be my lack of justice and dis, uh, disgust thereat and my plentitude of iniquity. He says, my sinful heart is the only thing that made me want to steal. For I stole what I already possessed in abundance. And you'll see that in his story. And I already had things of much better quality than what I stole. Nor did I desire to enjoy the thing itself, which was the object of my inclination to steal. But it was the very act of stealing, the sin that I delighted in. Here's his story. There was a pear tree in our vineyard which was laden with fruit that was not attractive and it did not taste good. But in the dead of night, for we had prolonged our playing as children in the vacant lots according to our usual unhealthy custom until then, we crept up to the pear tree, a gang of youthful good-for-nothings, to shake it down and to despoil it. We carried away huge loads of pears, not as a treat for ourselves, but simply to throw the pears to the pigs. Of course, we did it a few, but we did so only to be doing something that would be pleasant because it was forbidden. It's the only reason I ate the pears. I didn't like them. I just wanted to do something that was forbidden. Look at my heart, O God. Look at my heart, which thou hast pitied in the depths of the abyss. Look at my heart. May it tell thee now what it sought in this. 
that I might be evil without any compensation, and that for my evil there might be no reason except evil. The only reason I stole is because it was wrong. It was my heart was filthy, the sin was filthy, and I loved the sin. I loved my own destruction. I loved my own fault. Not the objects to which I directed my faulty action. I didn't love the pairs, but it was the fault itself which I loved. My vile soul leapt down from your support into extinction. Not shamefully coveting everything, but anything but coveting shame and guilt itself. The sin in us is so defiant against God that when God confronts us with his demands and says, don't do that, suddenly sin rises up and says, I will. And it compels us to do the very thing the law forbids. The law arouses sin. And this means that if we are to bear fruit that is pleasing to God, we've got to get free of the law. This is not a problem with God's law. It's a problem with me because the law only arouses sin in sinners. It does not arouse sin in righteous people. So why is it that in order to bear fruit to God, I've got to get free of the law? The first reason is because the law stirs up that sinfulness inside of me, so more sin comes out. The second reason, and this is the heart of what Paul's saying in Galatians 3, the second reason we've got to get free of the law is because the law fosters self-reliance. Look with me at Romans chapter 7, verse 6, and notice the first two words, but... Now, but now we are released from the law. The word but introduces a contrast. And the word now tells us that this contrast is between our current situation and our previous situation. What are the two situations he's talking about? There's this one, but now there's this one. The latter situation is that we have been released from the law. See that? But now we are released from the law. So the previous situation must have been when we were under the law. When we were not released from the law. Now that's the contrast we saw in Romans 6 verses 12 through 14. Before you were under the law and you could not bear fruit to God, your body was a slave to sin. Now you've been released from the law. Your body is no longer a slave to sin. It doesn't have to reign over you. So don't present the members of your body to it and use them to sin. Don't let sin reign because it doesn't have dominion. Why? Because you're not under the law anymore. That's what he says here. You used to be under the law, but now you've been released from the law. Okay? Apparently then the two contrasting situations are being under the law and not under the law. But the contrast is also between sin reigning over me and sin not reigning over me. Those two things on each side go together. Being free, sin doesn't reign. Or being not free, sin reigns. Being, not free, being free, sin does not reign. When I'm under the law, over here, that link is in place and sin reigns. So when I'm not under the law, the link is not in place and sin does not reign over me, Paul says. Because I'm not under the law. And that would lead us to the conclusion then that it is being under the law that creates that link in the first place. If there were no law, or if I were not under it, there would be no dominion, there would be no link, there would be no slavery. But because there is law, because I am under the law, that link is in place, and the members of my body are slaves to the sin which lies within me. So, how does the law create that link? 
how does the law make my body a slave to the sin that dwells within? And the answer is, in what the law is. And what we're going to go through in the next paragraph is essential to understanding Galatians 3. What is the law? The law is a series of commandments. It is words on the page that demand something of me. Many unbelievers don't care about the Ten Commandments, but some do, like Paul. They're very, very concerned to keep God's law. But all unbelievers have the law written on their consciences. Some of them get serious about keeping the law and keeping a clean conscience. Some of them really don't care, but nevertheless, they all stand under God's law, either written in the book or written on the conscience. Every person stands under God's law. And some of them get serious about keeping God's law. And what happens when they do? Well, now they know what they must do. Here's the law. I've got to do this. But the law does not give them power to do it. Because the law is just words on the page. If the law is going to produce righteousness, something more is needed than just the words on the page and the knowledge that I must do it. What is needed is actually doing it. The law can only produce righteousness if I, if I keep it. And so the law encourages me to keep it. The law encourages me to exert effort. The law encourages me to work hard, to do what it demands. If my effort is sufficient, the result will be righteousness. And this scheme looks something like what we've seen before, that the law plus human effort leads to righteousness. This is a scheme that every sinner likes. If God's law plus my effort produces righteousness, I'm good with that. You know why? Because it means my ability to get to God by performing righteousness lies in my own power. I can do it. It means I can work my way to God. I don't really need Him. I'm sufficient in myself to produce the righteousness that God requires. In other words, the law actually fosters a posture of self-reliance. It bases the successful production of righteousness on me. It's all up to me. It requires me to reach deep within myself to find the power to perform the law and to produce the righteousness that God requires. The law fosters self-reliance. And at the very least, that pride is the height of all sins. The law only induces sinful men towards, all, towards more sin. Think of it this way. Here's a little rhyme. To run and work, the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And so, when legalists turn inward to find the strength to obey the law, what happens? When you look within yourself for the strength to fulfill the law, what is within? Depravity. And so in teaching you to rely upon yourself, the law actually encourages that depravity to come out in concrete acts of sin. We are wretched. Paul says, in me dwells no good thing, but the law inclines me to rely upon my wretched self in order to perform it. 
And this self-reliance is what creates that link between the sin within and the actions of my body. The law places me in a situation where I must rely upon myself for righteousness. It pushes me into a posture of self-reliance, and that self-reliance creates that link between me, my sinful heart, and my body, the instruments that perform the acts of unrighteousness. When we choose law as the pathway to God, we recreate the link between sinful me and my body. Think of an unbeliever. Upon what can he rely to keep the law? Only himself. What's the result? Sin. No acts of righteousness. Believer. He does not have to rely upon himself. He has the possibility of serving in the spirit. And so now he has the possibility of presenting his members as slaves to sin or to righteousness. It all depends whether he presents them to sin or to righteousness. All depends upon what he relies upon to produce the righteousness. If I'm relying upon myself, I will present my members to the root of sin and the result will be sin. If I'm relying upon the Spirit of God, I will present the members of my body to Him to work righteousness in me. What would incline me to present the members of my body to sin? Answer, law. It produces self-righteousness and it produces self-reliance. This whole arrangement then is what Paul calls living in the flesh. What does it mean to live in the flesh? The flesh is those impulses and desires of sin that dwell in me. And living in the flesh is living in a posture of self-reliance upon my sinful flesh. The reason why living self-reliantly produces wickedness is because that's all that's in me. If you rely upon yourself, what do you expect? In me dwells no good thing, Paul says in Romans 7, and the law only fosters that kind of living, inclining me to trust in myself recreating that unbreakable link between sin in me and the actions of my body, arousing my hostility against God, stirring up more sin to flow out of me into the members of my body and concrete acts of sin, and all of this leads to death. If you live in the flesh, you will die, Paul says. And this means that if we are to bear fruit for God, we must be set free from the law. There must be some other means of producing righteousness in me than law plus human effort. And Paul tells us that this death to law, therefore, is death to sin that reigns over me. Look back at Romans chapter, 16, Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not any longer under law, but now under grace. Paul tells us in verse 4 of Romans 7 that this death to law takes place through the body of Christ. So that, verse 6, we may now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the law. What does Paul mean by this? Let's take these two aspects of what the law does that prohibit us from bearing fruit to God and let's see how Christ's cross destroys the reign of the law over us, okay? The first thing, that, well, second thing that we looked at is that the law produces a posture of self-reliance. Do it, okay, then I must be able to do it and I'll rely upon myself to do it and I'll produce righteousness. The law fosters self-reliance 
But the cross destroys that. We saw that last week. I live by faith, not in myself, but in the Son of God, Paul says. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Paul asks, if righteousness comes through my effort to keep the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians 2.21. What's Paul saying? Obviously, when he asks if righteousness can come by the law, he's including my own efforts to keep the law in that process. So if law and human effort could produce righteousness, then Christ died for no purpose. But he did die to show that law plus my own human effort is not sufficient to produce righteousness. So stop trusting in yourself. Live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Meditating upon the cross of Christ crushes all human trust in self. Meditating upon the law and striving to do it apart from the cross of Christ fosters self-reliance. The cross in every circumstance crushes our self-reliance. The law may push me towards self-reliance, but Christ's cross saves me from it, demolishing that impulse, reorienting me away from trusting in myself. And so, through the body of Christ, we have been crucified to law. Meaning, God, through Christ's death, has put to death in us the impulse to trust in ourself for the power to keep God's law. And that's what we saw last week. So the law fosters self-reliance and the cross destroys that. Secondly, the law arouses in me more and more sin. Why? Because it stirs up my hostility to God. The law says you are condemned before God. And so I say, well, if I am, if God and I are enemies, why should I live the way that he wants? Why not be my own God and live my own way? The law stirs up my hostility against God. And so I'm constrained to express that rebellion against God in concrete acts of sin. But the law can only produce that in me if my relationship to God is hostile. But if Christ's cross has demolished the law's condemnation of me, then the hostility is gone. I am restored to God and the law does not arouse hostility and sin in me. And so Christ's cross, verse 4, the body of Christ puts to death my relationship to the law. It severs my reliance and it destroys the hostility. The hostility arouses sin. The reliance creates the link. Arouse sin plus the link, lots more sin in my life. Christ's cross puts both to death, delivering me from the law. And now verse 6 of Romans 7 you can serve God in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What we've been considering is something that's true for us on an objective level. That means it's true regardless of what happens in your life. Christ's death severed your relationship to the law. Regardless of how you feel, the hostility of the law and its condemnation is over. Regardless of how you feel. Regardless of how you feel. Christ's death provided for the Spirit to be poured out upon you. And He lives within you to produce righteousness regardless of how you feel. That is an objective reality Christ has won for us by His cross. The, law ter the cross terminated 
the law's reign of condemnation over me. It opened the gateway for the Spirit to dwell within me so that I must no longer rely upon myself for righteousness. All of this is objectively true. But these objective truths must be reckoned upon, Paul says. We can still recreate that link so that sin once again reigns in our bodies. How? By living under the law. How do we do that? We re-erect the law. This is how I must live. Me plus God's law will produce righteousness. And that will only ever produce sin. If we re-erect the law as a means of achieving righteousness, then the law pushes us towards self-reliance, towards hostility against God. We end up relying on ourselves in which no good thing dwells. And the answer is more sin. Now, this does not mean that we must never live according to the law, and it doesn't mean that we get to live lawless lives. It does mean, though, that you can't get alone with the Ten Commandments and read them and say, I'm going to do that. I can do it. I will. That doesn't work for justification. I'll keep God's law, and then I'll have righteousness. And it doesn't work for sanctification. I'll just keep God's law, and then I'll have righteousness. It's possible to live a subjective day-to-day experience that differs from that objective reality. What we must do instead is reckon on these objective things to be true. The hostility is over. I cannot rely upon myself. That is objectively true. The Spirit dwells within me. The hostility is over. And now I have the possibility by the Spirit of presenting my body as instruments of righteousness. And all of this then, let's turn back to Galatians 3 as we finish here. All of this then means that if you began by the Spirit, you will not be perfected by the flesh. And it is foolish to think so. By being perfected by the flesh, Paul's not saying, you know that sin nature in you, if you just listen to everything it wants and obey it, you'll be perfect. That's not what he's saying by perfected by the flesh. Because if you, you can look at this in, Rome, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 23 And 29, Paul in Galatians does not mean sinful impulses when he talks about the flesh. In Galatians, when he talks about the flesh, he's talking about self-reliance. Reliance upon human ability. If you think you can be perfected by relying upon yourself, by working harder to keep God's law in your own strength, you are a fool, Paul says. Because you will be perfected by the Spirit in the same way you began. And this means that legalism for justification makes Christ's cross nothing. If you can keep the law, as Roman Catholicism teaches, and obtain a righteous standing before God by your own works, then Christ died for no purpose. If you can so obey God's law in your own strength that you can make yourself holy by the power of the human flesh, then Christ died for nothing. But Paul says he did die because righteousness does not come by the law. It comes by faith in the Son of God. I think we will finish up there today another couple of pages in my notes. I just 
finish with one paragraph here. What is happening in this book, Galatians? Here's what was happening at Galatia. Legalists had appeared on the scene. They were reintroducing the law. Righteousness was obtainable by keeping the law. Or at least keeping the law contributed positively to your balance of righteousness before God's court. And Paul knew that if you introduced the law for justification, you introduced it for sanctification also. If you introduce the law as the path of salvation, you introduce the law as the path of holiness also. And Paul knew that to introduce the law again would be to push these believers towards self-reliance. The efforts of the legalists then were only making the Galatians trust in themselves. No longer were they inclined to live by faith in the Son of God. Instead, they were inclined to live by faith in themselves, and that was the effect of introducing the law once again. Paul knows that path is disastrous. It is not the path of righteousness. Instead, it is a path to pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency and every kind of sin that is inside of you worked out through the members of your body. And so Paul calls these Galatian believers fools for falling for the trick of the false teachers. He calls them fools because chapter 3 verse 1, he had publicly proclaimed Christ as crucified. Why then would you turn back to the law? The cross pushes the human impulse to trust in oneself aside. So why are the Galatian believers falling for the temptation to turn back to trust in themselves before the law to produce righteousness? If that were the case, then Christ died for nothing, Paul says. What does it mean to live in the flesh? It means to rely upon yourself. And Paul says, are you so foolish? It took the Spirit of God to bring new life to you. And do you think now that your own human effort will bring you perfection? And Paul says, no. We no longer serve in the old way of the written code, hearing and striving to do. Now we serve in the new way, the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Producing the fruits of love, which fulfills the whole law. No longer relying upon ourselves but the vine in us to produce the life that we need. Lord God, thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit, for showing us Christ's cross, both of these. Cause us to take our hands off. They destroy our self-reliance. They put to death the hostility that we know in ourselves must exist between you and us. They quiet our conscience. They bring us to you. And they give us the power to walk in your ways. Lord, I pray that throughout our Christian life, these things would become more and more apparent to us. We pray that you would deliver us from self-reliance. Paul says that happens by the public portrayal of Christ crucified. And so we pray that in our own personal lives and here, gathered together, preaching, and perhaps most of all, the Lord's Supper, may you use the cross of Christ, the weekly reminder of it, to destroy our self-reliance and cause us to look up in faith to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
We pray, Lord, that the Lord's Supper now would have that effect for us. We reach out our hands to partake of the body and blood in symbol of Christ to nourish us, to fulfill the law because apart from him, we are dead. Grant us these things by your grace, Lord, we ask in Christ's name.